I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. And on the other hand, he knows way more than he should, thanks to books. I was a vampire with my poor children at that time. (laughs) It's a black hole and it can't be filled. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. Nabin Ratnam is a lover of metal music and literature, two things he shares with the high school hero of his new YA novel, The Grimmer. Nabin opens the program today to talk about his book and how his love of horror and music plays into his work. Vivek Shreya is another writer that fell in love with music early in life. It was her first love, and long before she began her successful writing career, she dreamed of pop culture stardom. Vivek's play, How to Fail as a Pop Star, has been turned into a CBC Gem series, and later today, she answers our Proust questionnaire. Sheila Rogers returns today, and she brings us an interview she did in Newfoundland with the iconic Newfoundland writer Michael Crummy about his new novel, The Adversary. And Ryan B. Patrick talks with Quebecois writer Catherine LaRue about the alternate history she imagined for her novel, The Future. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. Horror is having a moment right now. It's all over TV and movie screens and books, too. Maybe it was the pandemic or the relentless news cycle that keeps our anxiety meters in the red. Whatever it is, horror is a safe way to step into the dark side, and younger readers are often drawn to it. Now, Ben Ruffman is a lifelong horror fan, and last year he released The Help Meet, a horror novella for adults. And this year, Ben is back with a young adult horror novel called The Grimmer. It's a mix of magic and fairy tales about a teenage boy in Kelowna trying to figure out some family problems. And things get even more complicated when he's attacked by a ghoulish man who appears to be undead. Here to tell us more is the author of The Grimmer, Naben Ruthman. Hello and welcome back to the next chapter. Hi, thanks. Great to be here. But I have to tell you that I, I dove in uh, head first because I too, like your lead character, I'm a brown kid... Had a, pic- had a poster of The Crow as a teenager in his room, <laughs> worshipped Eddie Van Halen. I mean, you were just talking my language right out of the gate. This oh, book, that's really. great. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, so I've got a split audience for this, I suppose. It's it's the current young and the people who are who were born in exactly 1982 or 1981 exactly. or 80. Anytime any I felt myself getting distance, a Megadeth t-shirt he puts on would draw me back into the... <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so tell me about this. Your last book... Uh, before the Grimmer was an adult horror novella, what was your impetus to write YA horror? You know, I sometimes I think about fibbing a bit in interviews and pretending that my writing life is at all intentional. It really isn't. the The ideas just sort of uh, come when they come. And uh, with Help Me, Help Me is something that I actually I'd conceived of as a film idea, never really manifested. So I I ended up writing it like in five days as a novella. Um, the Grimmer, I, it's such a different kind of horror. Like Help Meet 
God, for God's sakes, keep your kids away from it. It's quite, it's quite intensely gory. But the grimmer actually came from like almost like a fondness and nostalgia, not just for my own childhood, but for the uh, the ghostly and horror books that I was reading at mm. the, at the age that Vish is in the book. So it almost came from the sort of the sweet Ray Bradbury world of horror that that sort of sense of um you know a permanent autumn and nostalgia a place where things can be confronted and then resolved. Mm. It's, uh, let's tell people when I say let's I'm going to lean on you for this. What is the difference or what do you see as the difference between horror for adults and then the kind of horror that you've written for young people in uh, in the Grimmer? I think it's I'm I'm going to I'm going to say that the blurring is what makes it exciting, I think. So I think horror for kids always has to be enough like horror for adults that that it's still effective as horror. Um, I think there might not be as deep of a psychological undertow and as much of a uh, embrace of irresolution in, ki- in kids' horror. Um, you know, John Beller is one of my favorite kids' authors. Uh, my, si- my sister and I used to always laugh about the the last pages of all of his books actually always end. They always end with like uh, the hero and his few friends uh, sharing some sort of moment, and the last line is almost always "Everybody laughed." Like there's always a sense mm. of of peace at the end of those books, and a lot of horror for adults doesn't get to that place. Which you'd rather? You don't like they they laughed at the end. Um, you know, if it's for kids, I do like they laughed at the end. In fact, it's a it's a little bit of a spoiler for my own book. <laughs> Okay, all right. Yeah. Now you know how it ends, everyone. But there's a lot before that that you should uh, dig your, you know, set your teeth into. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that, you know, Vish is the same age as you were, you know, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And and um, it's set in 1996. That's right, yeah. Uh, tell me why you chose 1996. Is it, did you want sort of technology to not play a factor in this? Or what, is it just really about the time period... You know, that author I just brought up, John Belairs, he was writing in the, the late 70s, the 80s, and uh, all of his books were set in, in the 50s, in, mostly in and around Massachusetts, obviously where he grew up. So I was rereading a few of those during the pandemic and realized, you know, I'm, I'm almost 30 years away from being the age of those protagonists now. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the 90s is as far away from me as the 50s was from him. And those books seemed so it didn't matter that they weren't contemporary to me because they were about the kinds of kids that I could relate to. Like, you know, slightly weird, probably more able to be friends easily with adults than other kids. Um, and, you know, interested in weird, ghostly stuff. Uh, so, yeah, the, the 90s setting, and I have to admit, there's probably some self-indulgence there, too. I did kind of want to just revisit that time in my life, even though the you know protagonist's life is wildly different from my own in Kelowna. A lot of the actual stuff there and the, yeah, as you say, the pre-technological world of, you know, it wasn't the Stone Age, but the pre-internet world of the 90s was also something that I, I, was, I was excited to revisit. It's interesting when you mention how far the 90s is from right now, that's a type of horror as well that you're presenting to some of <laughs> our listeners right. as they do yes. the math and go, oh, I didn't want to think about this. So let's talk about your protagonist a little bit. Vish is... A big reader. Literature mm-hmm. and music are his his two big things. And at one point, his mother laments that he might read too much, which mm-hmm. I love that moment because my father, it was the opposite. Like, you <laughs> don't read enough. My father was an English teacher, very angry about mm-hmm. my lack of commitment to literature and, and overcommitment to music. He balances both Metallica, Pink Floyd, a lot of these 
great bands come up. Zeppelin, he's living in Kelowna. It's a small, very white city. So tell us about Vish and how he operates in that uh, in that community. Yeah, at that time, especially in Kelowna, Kelowna did, you know, and a lot of it, since it's like focalized through Vish, to him it seems like completely undiverse because, you know, in his particular class family in his particular neighborhood, all he sees is is a very white world. But yeah, he's um he's someone who's also like had to take sort of a two year break from his life where he goes to a private school on Vancouver Island because his father was struggling with an addiction problem. And his parents' solution to like how do we deal with our kid in and and also this was to send him to a safe place, which to him felt more like a rejection. And uh, when he so he sort of steps back into his old life, feeling a bit betrayed by his family, feeling a bit betrayed by his friends, who he thinks sort of tattled on him and his family problems. And yeah, I think it, it's it's been a couple of years in which he's really driven more into the things that he could count on, which are, as you said, literature and heavy metal. You also paint a picture of Kelowna as almost a smaller place than it actually is mm-hmm. uh, when you talk about you know everybody kind of knew your business. Mm-hmm. I, that's an important setting, I think, because if your father is addicted to drugs, yeah. Um, in this situation, I guess you want people to know about it and it to have an effect on how you live the rest of your life. Or... That's right. Yeah, I mean, I have everybody who's from a small town or small city has an experience with that sort of sense of like a a bullhorn of gossip. So <laughs> that part's very true. The the having an addicted parent part definitely not based in my own experience, but the the I. Ha- my friends who did struggle with, you know, similar issues, who had family issues, which which did a sort of, you know, were things that they wanted to keep private. It was, it was really instructive to see how quickly word would seem to spread to them. Because if just one person or two people knew that they didn't want to know, it really did seem like everybody knew. And when you're sure. a teenager, I feel like embarrassment always has that sort of megaphone approach to it. Everybody knows. Sure. And you no longer control the... Uh... The narrative of your own life, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if loneliness is a, is a kind of personal horror, uh, before Vish even gets involved in the, the creeping creepy goings on or, or, that are happening around him, he had to endure two two years at boarding school. As you said, mm-hmm. he was shipped off while his father tried to um, you know get his life back on track. What was that like for him? I think you know what I think committing to that solitude was something that he sort of was excited by and liked in in sort of a self-flagellating way. But I think it explains why he does seem a bit um, older than his years in in some ways, because he's really, you know, built up a sort of persona that doesn't make much sense for a teenager. Like he's based it a lot in books that are about experiences that he has no, no actual experience of. So on the one hand, he's like really naive about what it's like to be a functional person with functional relationships. And on the other hand, he knows way more than he should, thanks to books. Um, and yeah, and certainly I borrowed a bit from my own life at that time for that. Uh, he goes to work at a local bookstore mm-hmm. on brand for a, a young man mm-hmm. who's immersed in, in literature the way he is. He finds himself caught up in this vampire-like, or, or with a vampire-like creature who devours people to keep himself alive. With apologies to our German-speaking listeners, he's mm-hmm. called Naxerer. Uh, What kind of folk tradition does that creature or a creature like that come from? He's more of like a a storehouse. Basically, people have made bargains with him to to be resurrected someday. So he's actually just, you know, assembling a bunch of tissue and souls and 
storing them within his own weird sort of spectral but still physical body. So it's not so much a, a feeding on these people as, as he's, you know, a storage unit for them. Mm. And eventually he's going to follow through on his promise to bring them back once he has access to enough energy. Um, and yeah, that is borrowed from European folk traditions in sort of the way uh, Mike Mignola does it in Hellboy, where, you know, there's a modern flourish and additions of pure invention in there. Uh, hopefully it's respectful to anyone who still abides to those... German folk traditions, but it's more of giving you a little bit of a flavor of of what those those fairy tales are like and manifesting in a new book. You're a brown man, visually speaking, right. and, and Vish obviously shares that with you, but there's other biographical details mm-hmm. that your protagonist shares uh, with your own life. What did you draw on from your own teenage years for when you were writing Vish? Definitely the reading and also the guitar stuff. I was very serious about about music as a as a participant as a player until so, until my mid 20s or so and definitely about heavy metal in particular which i actually never really played that much outside of my basement but that that was something that i expected as a as a teenage snob that i'd i'd outgrow mm-hmm. it's like you know i read the bokov now I, obviously i'm not going to be listening to morbid angel in my 40s i'm listening to morbid angel in my 40s it was it was something that uh, has never left me and i i feel that it's um a really pure and honest art form, and obviously it has a lot to do with you know teenage rage in in that context in those days. But even as as you get more placid and old, there's still so much in that music that I, I still respond to. So you've got the teenage rage, you've mm-hmm. got the uh, you know the guitar playing that he's also put to the side uh, mm-hmm. for, for, for some time. Um, that you also, I don't think you put it to the side, but you didn't take it out of the home at the very least. Right? I actually you, did. I, I was in a rock band for a long time. Uh, the metal it, didn't leave the home, exactly. but rock right. left the home. Yeah. Uh, what was it like for you to revisit uh, a, a version of your, your, your teenage self and your teenage mm-hmm. loves when you were uh, writing this character? It was definitely important to me to separate Vish enough for myself because, you know, I... Maybe I'm being ungenerous. I don't think I was as pleasant or fun to spend time with as Fish is in, in this book. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of the sort of sourness and nastiness of being a teen boy that definitely surfaces a little bit in this. But, you know, it was nice to sort of imagine a version of the self set in the same time that, that I, I... Everything about that time is very accurate, but... Uh, and everything about those passions is very accurate, but it was nice to sort of imagine a different person there. Mm. Vish is, as we mentioned, a wide reader. He likes spooky science fiction and horror stuff like H.P. Lovecraft, for example. What drew you to that kind of reading when you were young? You know, it's hard to say what sort of gets you exactly on that path. I remember just accidentally finding this anthology called The Sorceress in Stained Glass, which turned out to be the first book that uh, Richard Dalby, a really famous British anthologist, put together at the library book sale in Kelowna when I was seven or eight. And these were all early 20th century stories from magazines for grown-ups, but I really responded to them. And I realized, like, these are kind of like the, the like gentler ghostly tales for kids that I've been reading, but there's something more here, and I really like it. So I think that sort of sense of excitement about the possible in life when your kid sometimes manifests you know getting excited about the idea of aliens or ghosts and mm. i think it suggests a sort of future that is more interesting than the one you're probably going to get 
That's interesting. It's also very interesting to me that you mentioned your sister and you both shared this interest in, in horror books. Is that right? Or at least you would laugh at one of these That's authors right. who you mentioned. Yes, yeah, certainly early on we had we had a bunch of, of overlaps as, as you know, you know, growing up without infinite access to media in the 80s and 90s, of course, books circulated between family members. And that's actually probably why I was, I was lucky enough to be reading things like, uh, like Kafka when I was, you know, 13, 14. Wow. Not because I was brilliant in going out of my way to find these things. It's because I was looking on my dad's bookshelf for something that, like, looked kind of neat. And, you know, The Metamorphosis eh, seems like a monster book. Why, why don't we give it a shot? That's great. That does speak to your intelligence. My dad had about 10,000 books, and the amount of books that I took off his shelf and then put right back, I was like, ah, I'm too young for James Joyce, and I just put <laughs> it back, and, you know? I, I wasn't probably, but I uh, I cut myself out really quickly. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about horror. You, you touched on this just now. I'm kind of only recently introduced to horror, maybe in, over the last three or four years. Is it something that grows with you as a reader? Do you think? I absolutely think so. There's just so much um, depth and complexity to the genre. Like there's, you know, there's a reason why like a director like Stanley Kubrick eventually comes around in the in the like later half of his career to making a horror movie. It's something that draws in, you know, great artists who want to see if they can try to do something in this world. And, you know, on when I go back to my novella Help Me, two of the big influences on that are Henry James and Edith Wharton, who are known for, you know, the highest of high literature, but they've also written all these really fascinating ghost stories that are, you know, by, they're still the same authors, so they're still just as complex. In The Grimmer, at one point, one of the characters, Gisela, who was a, a kind of witch, says that magic isn't incantations and chalk circle, it's physics and biology. What does she mean by that? I really wanted to create a sort of grounded magic that I didn't have to describe in detail, for one thing, because it's 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 not a, a guidebook, but also that, you know, it was less mystical and just frankly out of the grasp of our main character to become immediately expert in. I didn't want to do a sort of um, chosen one Harry Potter thing where he's sort of magically capable of doing magic. So I made it, I made it resemble the subjects in school that he's worst at. And uh, I think I, I have to... Shout out H.P. Lovecraft here as well. A lot of the sort of um, approach to magic in this is is drawn from The Dreams in the Witch House, which is one of his short stories where um, a, a, a math PhD student discovers that this uh, this ancient witch in, in not ancient, but a, a witch in Massachusetts, uh, her occult book is very close to his own PhD thesis. And he realizes that there might be a, something beyond his mathematics and wants to learn more about it. All right. Nabin Ruthman, very nice chatting with you about this today. Great talking to you, too. Nabin Ruthman is the author of The Grimmer. He joined me in Toronto. Dog-eared. 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 The books that never get old. I'm Carrie Mack, author of Last Winter. One book I return to again and again 
is the short story collection Casino and Other Stories by Canadian author Bonnie Bernard, who died in 2017. Her short stories are Kodak slides waiting in a carousel, and when they're projected onto that white sheet against that basement wall, they come to life with the color and shape and movement captured in a moment that tells more than that moment. She invites the reader to step through that image into a complete square inch world inside of it, where relationships have their own weather patterns and the landscape is always one of the main characters. Her language is spare and evocative. She ranges her words just so she doesn't need any fluffery. I reread my favorite short story last night, Dear Heart, that's D-E-E-R, I've always said that this collection should have been called Dear Heart and Other Stories, and I say it now with the same conviction decades after reading it for the first time. Short fiction is my first love, and Dear Heart is one of my beloveds. I highly recommend Casino and Other Stories by Bonnie Bernard, and for that matter, anything else she wrote. How to Fail as a Pop Star may be the name of Vivek Shreya's new series for CBC Gem, but I sure don't think failure when I look at the list of successes that Vivek has under her very stylish belt. Alongside her ongoing music career, her memoir, I'm Afraid of Men, was a bestseller, and she's also the founder of an award-winning publishing imprint, VS Books. She's a regular on Best Dressed Lists and has been a brand ambassador for MAC Cosmetics and Pantene. Vivek Shreya was in our Toronto studio to answer the next chapter's version of the Proust questionnaire. Here she is. Name your favorite writers. These aren't necessarily my favorite writers, but the two writers that I credit for inspiring me to become a writer uh, are Leslie Feinberg and Toni Morrison. The reason why these authors are so meaningful to me is because it was reading their books, um, Leslie Feinberg's Stone Butch Blues and Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye that um, really inspired me to tell my own story and to even wonder what it would be like to tell my own story. Tell me about your favorite character in fiction. My favorite character in fiction is Anne of Green Gables. I think one of the reasons why I identified with her so much is that she, you know, there was something about her that was unwanted or undesirable and not because she was just um, an orphan, I believe, or adopted, sorry. <laughs> but also because, you know, of her appearance, her red hair, you know, she got made fun of a lot. And so I think, you know, as queer kids, you're always looking for like role models growing up. And I, I really, Anna Green Gables was like, <laughs> in a weird way, a queer role model for me. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? My desire to be liked. On what occasions do you lie? The last time I lied was when I was in an airport and I had just bought a ticket like an hour before and I didn't realize I had to check in as well. And so they didn't want to let me on the plane because I was past the weird cutoff time and I said that it was a family emergency. Where would you like to live? Well, right now I'm in the process of relocating, so I'd like to live in Toronto. You know, I lived here for 15 years in my 20s and 30s, and I think it just like went over my head. I just didn't feel a connection to it. I didn't care for it in any way, even though I know I am privileged 
to have gotten to live here. But n- now in the past recent years, I just, I find it so vibrant, you know, and I'll be walking through like the most touristy places like Young and Dundas and I'll have like tears in my eyes because I'm like, this city's alive. But I just, I love all the neighborhoods. And I think, you know, for me, it's just, it's so great not to be the other on any given street. There is always people of color, queer people, different people, there's just such a there's just nowhere like Toronto in that in that respect. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Any kind of happiness. Honestly, I really feel like some people like skew towards happiness and I think in my 40s especially I'm just like that's like my number one burning question is like how to be happy. What what do I do to to be happy? So perfect happiness would be any form of happiness. <laughs> Who are your favorite heroes in real life? I mean, I know it sounds corny, but my mom is like one of my biggest heroes. I think one of the things I admire about her so much is that she, unlike me, was never the person in front of the microphone. She was always the person behind the scenes. It's just a reminder for me, I think, especially when I think about leadership, that there's many ways to be a leader in the world and that like there's so much that people contribute that we never, and, and those people never get recognized and they're often not the people who are talking into the microphone about who their real-life heroes are. What is your greatest extravagance? I love a good cheese. I don't know. Like, cheese is one of those things at a grocery store where I don't look at the price. Like, I just, like, want that, like, 20-year-old cheddar, and I'm just going to get it, you know? Somebody once told me that the way to measure a good life is by how many cheeses you have in your fridge. And I want to say right now, full disclosure, I have three different kinds of cheeses. I have a light feta. I have stringy cheese, which I've become obsessed with in my 40s, is stringy cheese. It's so enjoyable. Just like what a joyful thing to do is rip a piece of cheese and then eat it as it gets smaller and smaller. And then something called Parmesan petals. It's this beautiful, it's like Parmesan, but they're like flakes and they're like petals and you put them into your scrambled eggs and they're delicious. What is your greatest achievement? I think the thing I'm proudest of is uh, my perseverance, especially as an artist. Um, I think to be a creative person and try to make it your job, you kind of have to be not fully well. (laughs) Um, because there's so many things uh, about this job um, that are difficult and you're constantly experiencing rejection and uh, failure. But I think the fact that I have continued to keep showing up and keep trying new things, um, yeah, I would say that that's my greatest achievement. That was Vivek Shreya answering the next chapter's version of the Proust questionnaire. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Catherine LaRue offers a vision of the near future in her novel, The Future, but she also puts an intriguing spin on the past. In the early 18th century, the French actually settled in Detroit, and in Catherine's imaginary world, they never left. The future takes place in the French-speaking enclave of Fort Detroit. It's a neighborhood contending with poverty, lawlessness, and climate change. The story centers around a woman's search for her two granddaughters, who have gone missing after the murder of their mother. Catherine LaRue is a fiction writer and translator from Montreal. She's also been a columnist for the next chapter, recommending francophone titles that have been translated into English. The Future was translated into English by Susan Oriu, and Catherine was in the Montreal studio when Ryan B. Patrick spoke with her. So the future is based on the notion that France never ceded the territory that it held in the Detroit area. So it, it continues to be this French enclave or, or French community many centuries later. How, how did you come to this idea or this notion? The idea is that actually that the French state, which is true, there's still there's a huge French community in that area in, in southern Ontario, the area of, of uh, Windsor, and also in the Michigan area. Um, so the French never left in, yeah. in reality. <laughs> but my idea was that it never became American. And so basically in my world, Detroit or Fort Detroit is the second biggest francophone city in North America after Montreal. So that's the setting. Right. And how I came to that, I think that as soon as I started being interested in in the history of Detroit, it went without saying that I would have to like delve into that. And then it, it was also for novelistic reasons, because I wanted to be able to write dialogue that felt that, that felt closer to the dialects and the and the French that I hear around me. And if I'm writing about English characters, but I'm writing their dialogue into French, then it can't really take that shape. So it was kind of a nice way to rewrite history and rewrite the history of language at the same time. Yeah. So speaking of history, I actually went to school in Windsor, which is, of course, across the oh. river from Detroit. Detroit is a very interesting city in terms of urban decay and decline. And you, mm -hmm. you capture that, but in a dystopian sense in the future. How do you see the world of Fort Detroit? I mean, I've resisted the label of dystopia for a lot of reasons. First of all, because I did push it further than it is in Detroit, but the extent and the magnitude of the decay, I didn't exaggerate that much. I mean, no. for, for, for a few decades, the conditions in those neighborhoods were pretty dire. And so I didn't have to take it that much further. I was interested in Detroit in the first place because I see those post-industrial places as kind of like petri dishes of like, you know, like, let's take a look at this because there, it's just maybe they've evolved past our present condition a little quicker, you know, so let's observe what's happening because this might be happening in a lot of other cities sooner or later, right? Like there's so many things going on that are indicative of, of a change in our way of life, I think. So that's why I'm I'm resisting the idea of dystopia because I think that I I actually didn't have to make up that much stuff and also for me dystopia means something very apocalyptic yeah. and 
and hopeless and you know like the cliche of the dystopian novel is that you know uh, everyone becomes everyone's enemy and everyone wants to steal everything and kill kill everyone <laughs> around them and like eat their legs and stuff like that and I, I think that it is imperative especially in this moment of history that we start thinking about another version of what could happen after things collapse or yeah. And that version, in my opinion, must include cooperation and solidarity and kindness towards each other because I I don't think humanity stands a chance if we don't act as if collaboration and solidarity are possible in these moments. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say, yeah, I agree with what you're saying in terms of that dystopia kind of connotation. But And Detroit, the real-life Detroit, is a case study in urban decay. And, and what, yeah. you're, what you're talking about in this novel, isn't that far removed? Have you been to Detroit? Did that kind mm-hmm. of inspire the story in any, any shape or form? Absolutely, 100%. The first time I went, there were already what they call urban prairie, right? Like it used to be neighborhoods. It used to be uh, factories and stuff. And it just collapsed to the ground or burned down and disappeared. And now it looks like a prairie. There's all sorts of vegetation that's growing back there. And then there's the other aspect of that. It's not just wilderness. There's people that decided to take advantage of these new spaces that were creating by the abandonment and the decay and start farms. And that's something, those two things, the new wilderness reclaiming the spaces and urban agriculture were things that I really wanted to explore in this fictional version of Mm. of the city that I created. Yeah, so Catherine, in the novel, The Future, we're looking at Gloria, who's the main protagonist. Um, She's come to for Detroit in search for answers. She wants to know what's happened to her granddaughters, Cassandra and Matilda. Uh, So she's essentially mourning the death of her own daughter, which is their mother, and you've given them so much to deal with. How, how does she cope? How, well, what's Gloria's mindset? Um, Gloria is initially extremely passive and she doesn't really know where to start. And she's, you know, experiencing tremendous grief. Um, so she's kind of paralyzed. And what happens is that her neighbors reach out to her and get to know her and understand why she's there and start pushing her into motion. And eventually, through her search for her granddaughters, Gloria discovers that, you know, what she's experiencing on an individual level is also happening in a greater scale. And it's only once she decides to get involved beyond her own personal situation, her own personal tragedy, that things in her own personal situation start moving forward. Mm. Gloria often sees beauty in her surroundings. Mm -hmm. Why does beauty matter so much to Gloria? I think it's her ultimate connection to a world that feels meaningless at this point in her life. And, And I think it's something that I've experienced and I'm guessing a lot of other people have experienced. You know, when something really terrible happens when when tragedy strikes, when someone around us is, is sick or has an accident or dies. I've experienced these moments of like, obviously, I'm extremely upset and I can't think about anything else. But at the same time, my perception of the world is more, is intensified. Mm-hmm. And I'm struck by the beauty that surrounds me, by the sounds, by the textures. 
it's like the the usual um, carapace that exists between yeah. the self and the world is sort of dissolved and we become extremely vulnerable to everything, including beauty. We start noticing things differently because our hearts are sort of like so open. And it's true with, with positive things too. I mean, like having a baby or, or <laughs> you know, like falling in love. It's just these moments where the heart seems more connected to the world. And I think that's what Gloria is experiencing and allowing us to experience through her. Yeah. So speaking of beauty, uh, motherhood, the theme of motherhood plays a huge part in this book. Um, Gloria often reflects on motherhood, both the joys uh, and the anxieties. How much did you draw from your own experience of being a parent in terms of that theme in the book? Oh my God, so much, Ryan. I was a vampire with my poor children at that time. <laughs> because what we haven't talked about yet is also, it's the fact that there's a huge community of children mm -hmm. that live in Fort Detroit uh, in a way that's pretty much autonomous. And it was important for me to give a realistic depiction of what childhood is. So I paid extra attention to, <laughs> to what my children were doing because they were exactly the age of these, these characters and their language too, because I wanted to recreate all the, the grammatical and syn syntactic errors that children typically do. I wanted them to have uh, their own relationship to language. So so I was definitely, um, with their semi-authorization, I definitely drew a lot from what they were saying and doing at the time. And then, yeah, I mean, beyond that, definitely one of the starting points for this book was my own, uh, you know, I put two children in the world and then without really thinking about it that much. And then yeah. once they were there, I was like, oh, they're not going to be children forever. They're going to have a very long life. And suddenly it felt like my own life expectancy had been extended by another 80 years because it included <laughs> their lifespan. Yeah. And I started thinking about all those years in front of us and how difficult they might be. And definitely a lot of eco-anxiety in my mind, on my mind at that time. And that was the impulse for the book. I needed to write something that took into account people that were young and vulnerable and needed to build a life in a world that was partly destroyed and find positive, find light in there, find hope for them. I don't want to give too much away that there's this lovely way that you end the book where things kind of seem hopeful despite the difficult circumstances that the characters are in or what they're facing. Where does that sense of optimism come from? Um, I think that it's, we have to be optimistic. Mm. <laughs> what else are we going to do? Yeah. I mean, it, and it sort of goes back to what I was saying about storytelling and dystopia. I think there's a, an element of self-fulfilling prophecy in those things where like, if we say, no, we can still tackle this, then we have a chance of doing this. If we say, um, no matter what happens, if we can count on each other and respect each other and protect each other, then we'll be all right. Then that's what's going to happen. Whereas if we say, oh, as soon as, as soon as, you know, we reach this point, then it's, it's all hell will break loose, then that's what will make happen. You know, what we believe matters a great deal. And I toyed a lot with the idea of 
time, the structure of time as a construction. And I find it very hard to accept the irreversibility of time. And mm. that, and for that reason, our like Western notion of time as something linear is, is kind of painful. Um, but if you start thinking about time about as something that can be circular or, you know, spiral shaped, then you get second chances. It's not that you're going to go back in time and get a do-over. It's just that if things are cyclical, then there will be another point in the wheel where you can jump again and try to do things slightly differently. And that's the case for the whole community of Fort Detroit who want to want to get a second chance at making things better for, for these kids, these little wildlings. And I think that we have to think that we will get a second chance as, as a civilization. Catherine LaRue is the author of The Future, which was translated into English by Susan Oriu. She spoke with Ryan from our studio in Montreal. Every August, Sheila Rogers heads to Woody Point in Grossmoor, Newfoundland for the Writers' Festival there. And for many of those festivals, Michael Crummy has been there as well to talk about his latest book. His new one this year is The Adversary, and it packs a real punch. It's a mirror book to his previous novel, The Innocents, and where The Innocents was a story of sibling love, The Adversary is a story of sibling hate and rivalry. A brother and sister in a Newfoundland outport dedicate themselves to a lifelong sibling vendetta. And because these two hold power in their community, everyone around them is forced to take sides. Here's Sheila and Michael Crummy exploring the fraught sibling dynamics between Abe Strap and the Widow Canes. Early on, uh, we learned that Abe Strap, and these are the words of his father, Cornelius, was uh, like, or like a mirror image of his father, Cornelius, with all that was admirable in the father's nature, reversed. How, how do you get inside a character like Abe Strap? Well, he's based on a real person, loosely. Uh, and again, um, I, I mean, I should probably be sending residual checks to Bruce Whiffen, who, who wrote a book called Prime Birth, about the early years of Bonavista. And uh, a ton of things from that ended up in The Innocents. And there was one character uh, that Bruce wrote about that I, I had originally planned to put in The Innocents. But I realized as soon as I started writing that book that I had to stay with the brother and sister, that I, I was not going to leave that cove. But there was a merchant in Bonavista who, this was in the 18th century, um, and he was also, uh, he became a magistrate at some, at some point, but he was a complete reprobate. He was a drunkard, he was a brawler, he shot and killed an Irish servant during some arguments. There were no consequences for that. He uh, recruited and shipped a bunch of prostitutes from St. John's to Bonavista and set up a brothel. And everybody else in Bonavista hated him. And because of this character who I had wanted, I was interested in, I started to think, I wonder if there's a way to write a mirror image of the innocence. Mm. And this character to me was the place to start for that. I thought, well, if it's a, if it's a mirror image of the innocence, then there has to be a sister. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And as soon mm. as I thought that, I had a book. I think I started writing within two or three days of that thought yeah. um, because then there was a story. 
But to get back to the question of how do you get inside the head of someone like Abe, um, I mean, I feel like we've all been living in a world where Abe Strap is in the ascendance, you know, where Abe Strap is running things. I think that, I think that Donald Trump is, uh, is much like Abe in the sense that he has no interior life, um, that his only sense of himself and his only gauge of what he is worth is from what he owns or what he can get from people. And because the interior world is empty, it, it, it's a black hole and it can't be filled. So Abe is somebody who is constantly looking at everything around him in terms of how much of this do I own? How many of these people can I make do what I want them to do? And that, was, that is his only way of feeling any kind of value in the world. That's how he measures himself out in the world. But there's a real temptation for readers to sympathize with the widow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to look at her as the place that our sympathies should lie in the story and to root for her. But I have gone out of my way to make it clear that she is, she and Abe are completely different in, how, in what they think is important, in how they relate to people, and the face that they present to the world. But they are exactly the same on the inside. So this novel is about a community that is dominated by two black holes and everybody ends up in the orbit of one of those or the other. This is a a small community. These are two incredibly powerful, irresistible black holes and in the end, everybody is sucked into them in one way or the other, even the innocents, Mm -hmm. even the people who try to do the best with what they can. I was rooting for... um the, the widow. widow. Yeah, I was. And it's another character, another female character that points out she is just like Abe. She is not good. And then, you, I mean, you build the case and you build the case and you build the case. But the the relationship that they have is is really interesting. And as you say, so, so far removed from the relationship the siblings and the innocents have. And I, it made me think about childhood and how, I don't know, did anyone have a real childhood as we know it in those times? Uh, I doubt it. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, I mean, you would have to have an, a, a life of immense privilege. Mm-hmm. So I guess there were families, like, rich enough that their children remained children until their teen years. But, I mean, my father talks about how he grew up in Newfoundland in the 30s and 40s and started fishing when he was nine. And he says, you know, I, I never had a childhood. And... He was in a rush to grow up, too, right? From what he could see of the world, you had to become an adult to be a contributing member of the family, right? You took on things. Mm -hmm. And uh, childhood was not an option. And I think if you move from the 1930s back to the turn of the 18th century, that was even exponentially more true. Um, And that as soon as you were able to walk, you were recruited Mm -hmm. into the business of survival. So I don't think that there was a childhood really for any any of these youngsters. You've you've mentioned the Beatle right off the bat and he is a character from that we meet first of all in the innocence. Tell us about the Beatle, also known as Mr. Clinch. Yeah, well the Beatle um was a character in the Innocence who is the headman of Straps businesses. So he's a part of what his job is 
is to uh, travel along the coast to the to the uh, plantations that the that Strap owns, and to give out the curing salt and the materials that operations need to uh, get through the season and to cure their fish. And then he comes along in the fall and collects the fish that they use to pay for what they've taken on in credit. So in the innocence, the, uh, the only contact with the outside world they have for most of the book is the arrival of the beetle on, on Strap's ship, The Hope. Uh, in the spring with supplies and in the fall with supplies and to pick up their fish. And when I started writing this book, the adversary starts at the exact same moment that the innocence does. And it ends at the same time as the innocence. So what we see is the beetle in Mach Beggar. And, and, and the adversary takes place in Mach Beggar, which is the town closest to the cove that the kids live in that we hear about. Known as Orphan's Cove. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. In The Innocence, we see him arriving in the cove. In this book, we see him uh, departing from Macbeger to go off to the cove and coming back from it. Mm. But he is also the headman uh, of Straps Enterprises and also the beadle of the, of the Church of England, who have lost their, uh, their minister 20 years previously, and they haven't been able to find a replacement. And so he's become sort of the spiritual head on the shore. Like, he is the guy. And he takes that role quite seriously. And he's somebody who uh, has worked for Abe Strap's father for decades. And when it comes to the point where it's clear that Abe Strap's father is going to die, he kind of operates to make sure that Abe Strap takes over the family business. Why does, why does he side with Abe? I, I think... Because, uh, I mean, it's a Cain and Abel story, right? And in the Bible, Cain and Abel offer up their sacrifices to God. And one is accepted, and one is not. And there's no particular reason for that. Like, there's no explanation. It's just like, oh, this one's acceptable, this one's not. In that world at that time, and, you know, in some ways still today, but particularly then... A woman, regardless of her competence, regardless of her skill, regardless, it didn't matter what she brought to the table, her offering was not accepted. And for the beetle to think of a woman in a position of power like that is complete anathema. And he's not going to have it. So the beetle is one of those people who ends up in the orbit of Abe's strap by choice, thinking that I can work around this black hole. And use it for good. Uh, and discovers, I think, probably, not to give too much away, that he can't. It's a world, um, the world you create, uh, and the world I visualize through reading your book, your story, it's almost like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. But, right. <laughs> um, there's, there's just, uh, it's just wild, like in every corner, something really debauched is going on. And uh, Abe, Abe thrives on that. Right. It feeds him. Is there ever an end to appetites like that? Uh, I think um, death is, okay. is an end to appetites like that. It seems clear to me that there are particular kinds of narcissism. Mm-hmm. He also is somebody who is um, controlled by animal appetites, for lack of a better phrase, that uh, it's 
drink and food and sex mm -hmm. and power. In the end, it's power that he and and the widow's not interested in drink or uh, necessarily food or sex, except in some very particular circumstances that she has control over. Uh, but power is what she wants as well, you know? And she's much more conscious of what moves her and why she's doing the things she's doing. But her goal in the end is exactly the same as her brother's. Abe is all uh, bludgeoning and pushing and uh, bullying. And the widow is much more calculating and thinks ahead and sees way further than Abe is capable. And because um, she's, she's playing chess in this book, and Abe is uh, watching other people play checkers on his behalf, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but the language, Michael, um, it's, it's so, so rich, and it's, it's so dimensional. And I, I just... But, there was just a little phrase, houses propped on higgledy stilts. I, just the rhythm and the musicality of that. Are you looking for that consciously as you write? I, I don't know how conscious I am of anything when I'm writing. Um, so I just hope for the best when I sit in the chair. And I do think um, I have found a voice and in The Innocence, and in this book in particular, there's a, there's a voice that's, that fits this narrative that was automatic. It was there when I sat down and started writing the first page of each novel. And it's something that feels completely natural to me now. So um, when I'm writing those descriptions, it does feel like it just comes out. It does feel like it's, it's something that I'm not even conscious that I'm doing. You can say in one way, it took me six months to write this book. In another way, you could say mm -hmm. it took me 40 years. Yeah. yeah. Because I've been working towards being able to sit down and write like this mm -hmm. for a long, 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 long time, it feels like. It's wonderful. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thank thanks. You. That was Sheila Rogers in conversation with Michael Crummy about his novel, The Adversary. It was recorded at the Writers at Woody Point Festival in Grossmore, Newfoundland. And that's it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. And my thanks this week to Olivia Pasquarelli, Barb Carey, Trevor Carter, Emily Chiarvesio, Max Sims in Woody Point, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, my pal and fellow comedian Charles Demers recommends some reading that puts animals at the center of the story. And Ryan B. Patrick talks with the Giller-nominated novelist Sarah Bernstein about her novel, Study for Obedience. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.